0: So we've been in First Kings 19, talking about uh, renewal, and we're going to continue there. It's just one verse, um, and here it is. And he arose, and ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to the mount of God. There he came to a cave, and lodged in it. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. I'm going to begin a little bit differently today. I'm going to begin by reading us a children's story. This may be the main thing you remember all day, and that is okay. But this is a book called We're Going on a Bear Hunt. We're going to catch a big one. Okay. So here, let me dive in. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Oh, no. grass. Long wavy grass. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. And this is what you say it with me. We've got to go
1: through it.
0: Thank you. Swishy 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 swishy. Yeah, that's right. We're going on a bear hunt. We're gonna catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh oh. A river. A deep cold river. We can't go under it. We Over it. We can't go under it. Oh no. We've,
1: We've got, got to, to go, go through, through it. Good it.
0: job. Splash, 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 splash. If anybody wants to do that part, We can do that next time. Okay. We're going on a bear hunt. We're gonna catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh-oh. Mud. Thick, oozy mud. Can't go over it. Can't go under it. Oh no. We've got to go through it. It's my favorite. Squirt scorch, squirt, squorch, squilt, scorch, squilt, scorch. Money shoes. We're going on a bear hunt. We're gonna catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh-oh. A forest. A big dark forest. Can't go over it. You Can't go under it. Oh, no. We've got, you got to. to go through it. Stumble trip, stumble trip, stumble trip. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh-oh. A snowstorm. A swirling, whirling snowstorm. Can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh no! We've got to go through it. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I'll do that once. That's enough. Okay, we're going on a bear hunt. Yes, I'm still going. We're gonna catch a big one. What a beautiful day! We're not scared. Uh oh, a cave! A narrow, gloomy cave. We can't go under it. Can't go over it. Oh no! We've got to go through it! Tip-toe, 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 what's that? One shiny wet nose, two big furry ears, two big googly eyes, it's a bear! Quick, back to the cave! Tip-toe, 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 back to the snowstorm! Back to the forest! Double-trip, double-trip, double-trip! back through the mud, squelch squirt, squirts, squelch squirts, squirt, back through the river, swish splash, swish flush, back through the grass, swishy swashy, swishy swashy. Get to the front door, open the door, up the stairs. Oh no, we forgot to shut the door. Back downstairs, shut the door, back upstairs, into the bedroom, into the bed, under the covers. We're not going on a bear hunt again. Thank you, I'll be here all week. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> out can't go over it Can't go under it What is it? We've got to go through it So his family's on a journey They encountered unexpected barriers along the way But they can't go over They can't go under these barriers What do they have to do? They have to go through it With the, the soundtrack and all So we're, we're continuing Uh the series on Journey to Renewal. This is First Kings 19. It's a story of Elijah after the height of his ministry experience. And he's going on this journey to ultimately encounter God. And he, this week, and us throughout our lives, goes through this significant, significant stage that we will call the Wilderness. There are things in life that we often want to bypass, that we want to go over, that we want to go under, even want to go around them, but we can't. It's unmistakable, it's unavoidable. It's just something that we have to go through. So, in many ways, All that Elijah has experienced. So if you don't have a Bible, open up to 1 Kings 19, just as a quick run through of what's happened up to this point. So in verse 4, we are introduced to the setting that's called the wilderness. Uh, Up to this point, everything that he's experienced has been in a wilderness type setting. The coming to an end of himself when he's just writes the suicidal note that he's saying, I'm done when he gets rest and as we talked about last week of being fed by the angel in verses five, six, and seven. But now there's a new phase to this wilderness. He's instructed by the angel, as we saw in verse eight, to eat one last meal, he eats. And it's based on the strength of that meal that he's going to travel through the wilderness. Last week we talked about rest, this week we understand Why rest is so important. (coughs) The text gives us clues to the state of mind that Elijah is in at this time. So, think his mental, physical, spiritual, and emotional state. It gives us some clues into what happened. So, he's in this town called Beersheba, it's the southern kingdom of Judah, and it's about 260 miles away from the traditional site of Mount Horeb. Now, Mount Horeb is probably a mountain range that has in it a very famous mountain called Mount Sinai, okay? So, he's on his way to Mount Horeb, 260 miles, and he travels there in 40 days. So, let's do the math for a second. If Elijah walked every day, say he didn't even take a Sabbath, He walked every day. Where are my math people at? We talked about math last week a little bit. He would do six and a half miles per day. So, let's assume Elijah walked 10 hours a day. 14 hours off, lots of breaks. Let's just assume 10 hours a day. That would mean that Elijah walked at a pace of 0.65 miles per hour. Let Let me give you some context. When my family goes on a leisurely walk at night, we go roughly one mile every 23 minutes. Leisurely. He is going painfully slow. Just slugging along. No excited rush. Because for Elijah, the wilderness was not just a physical location that he found himself in. But it was the metaphorical location of where his heart was at the time. It's safe to assume that in this .65 mile per hour pace, he's still dealing with all the stuff uh, that is going on in his heart. He's not full of life, he's not full of energy, he's painfully and slowly walking to Mount Horeb in a dark, emotional place. He's dealing with the internal struggles That comes from the threats of his life. From Ahab and Jezebel. And the question for us is. Where is God amid the wilderness? Both this physical and metaphorical place. Where is God? Now for Elijah. The text does not sell us anything. God doesn't speak to him in the wilderness. The scripture doesn't say that God was there to guide him through the wilderness. From what we see in this passage. Elijah is alone. No external noise vying for his attention, but just him alone in the desert, walking painfully slow, dealing with the depths of his own emptiness. He couldn't go over this one, he couldn't go around it. He had to go through it. Now, in the biblical narrative, Elijah is not the first, nor is he the last to go through the wilderness. Now the author's intentionally making references here that if you had a hyperlink, you could press the hyperlink and it would take you back to, first of all, it would take you to the story of Moses. So let me give you a quick backstory of Moses who also experienced wilderness multiple times. So if you're new to the Bible, uh, Moses was a adopted child of Pharaoh. Significant power, significant influence at the time. He ends up murdering an Egyptian and runs away in the wilderness for 40 years. And he ends up in a wilderness location called Midian. So once adopted child, really powerful, really influential. And now he's spending his time in the wilderness wandering around. He's a shepherd with sheep often by himself. The time doing what felt like meaningless tasks. Think of what it would have been like for Moses After 40 years of experiencing power and influence, to then experience 40 years in the wilderness. The humility that would have been built in him of 40 years of nothingness. The patience, day after day, shepherding sheep with very little else around. The pruning that would have been happening in his character. But that was just a foretaste for Moses. We know he spent 40 years there, but then one day God showed up in, uh, in Exodus chapter 3. But, and then eventually he would lead God's people not only out of Egypt, but Moses would lead them through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. Does sound familiar? Where he would give the people and receive the Ten Commandments. Where he would encounter God face to face. To where his people would then disobey him. Not into the Promised Land. And then they would... Under Moses' leadership, a a nation of millions of people would wander around the wilderness for another 40 years. So, lots of wilderness time for Moses. And Israel's wilderness wanderings had a purpose to them. So why is there the wilderness? Thankfully, scriptures tell us. God clarifies this at the end of the 40 years. And this is Deuteronomy 8. And this is verses 2 and 3. He says this, Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did this to teach you that people do not live by bread alone, but rather... We live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Note that verse in your brain. This passage, Deuteronomy 8, talking about why the wilderness of God's people, why they have to go through that stage, goes on to say that they're about to walk into the promised land that's luscious, that's glorious, that's beautiful and wonderful. But he warns them not to become proud. So through the wilderness experience of Moses and Israel, this passage gives us two key things that they experience. The first thing is humility. The wilderness is a place of humility. It's to remove any pride that was found within them and within us. Those times in our life where things don't make sense, where we're not experiencing the luscious promise that God has given us when we are feeling like we're just wandering through it, the dark, hard, difficult times of life that we all experience. The first thing that God does with them, he uses it in our lives so that we don't forget who is God. We don't forget that that is not us. So that we would depend on him and remember it's him that any success or health comes from. Look at Deuteronomy 8, verse 17 and 18. He did all this so that you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Yes. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you power to be successful in order to fulfill the covenant he confirmed to your ancestors with an oath. How many of you right now would you say, I'm a pretty prideful person. Not many of you, right? Like some, in some ways, but like, I've come to discover that most of the time, we wouldn't, don't find ourselves prideful in the moment. It's years later when we look back at our younger selves and we're like, oh my goodness, I was so proud, right? It's like when you look back at what you once were thinking or what you once went through or what you once thought you could accomplish without God's strength. And then you go through the wilderness experience and then you look back and you say, my goodness, look at the ego I had there. Keep in mind, your future self will be looking back and thinking the same thing. Secondly, if first, the wilderness experience of, of this difficulty in life is not only about humility, it's secondly, a place of testing our character. It says that in the Deuteronomy 8 passage, for Israel, It was a pruning of a rebellious generation so God could have his people follow him. The wilderness experience in our lives is a pruning the parts of our lives that cling to something or someone other than Jesus. Where we realize that we must live by the word of God alone. This isn't something we can go around or go over. We've got to go through it. Scripture often talks about idols in our hearts. Historically, these are false gods that were carved as wooden images. Now, we don't have that. I don't think anybody here in your home has a little wooden statue of a false god. But we still have idols of our hearts that we look to fulfill what we're longing for. Oftentimes, these idols are very, very good things. It's your job, your relationships, your dreams, your marriage, your kids, it could be all different types of things. But often what happens is when they become idols, it's because we've exaggerated their goodness to be a state, status of God in our lives. We have to, oftentimes we have to go through a wilderness experience when these idols of our lives let us down. Where they show their true face. Where we think, man, if I get this, then I will fill in the blank. And then you get to experience what it's like when you get that, and you're still feeling it. Oftentimes the wilderness is to prune us so that we will recognize the sin of false worship and ultimately that we get to experience the goodness of God. So in Israel, we see two reasons for the wilderness, a humbling and a pruning. But I think we get to see a third one that I think is important for us. And we see that in the life of David. And it's not about pride or pruning, this one's about preparation. So, if you know the story of David, David was a shepherd out in the middle of the wilderness. He's one of the youngest of Jesse's family, lots of older siblings. So, Saul, who is king, disobeys. Samuel, the prophet, has to go and anoint a new king to replace Saul. And God leads him to a house by a man of name of Jesse. So, he's at Jesse's house. And Jesse brings out all the, father, all the sons that he thinks could potentially be king. So, like, these are my sons that could be king. And, and Samuel goes to all of them. And he says, it's none of those. Do you not have any other sons? And what's Jesse's response? Well, I have one more son, but he's out with the sheep. He's a shepherd. At, David's in a little bit of a metaphorical wilderness in his family. His father doesn't even think he's got the chops. Outcast, not called in. Once he was anointed, so David was picked. He was chosen. Oil. Anointed him as king. It was not a straight shot to the throne for David. It took David 15 years until he was able to ascend the throne. And if you read through the story of the life of David in the scriptures, which I encourage you to do, you'll discover that that 15 years was an extended wilderness experience. Oftentimes and sometimes literally on the run from his life in caves from the very person that he was supposed to take over kingship from. Wilderness experience. So for David, he was anointed, but he was not ready. The wilderness pruned parts of his heart. I mean, he ends up being described as a man after God's own heart. The reason that God didn't like Saul, God was using the wilderness to prune that in David's life. Yes, but he was preparing him to lead in a new way that was more in line with God's own heart as opposed to what Saul was doing. So I want you to think about the promises that God has given you. Think of the times that you've heard God share with you things that he would have you do, or ways that you felt that he would move through you. And yet, there's these large chunks of time, from promise to fulfillment, from anointing to ascension, Waiting for years like Abraham and Sarah for a baby. Waiting for years like David to do what God had called him, anointed him to do. Wherever we look in the Bible, we find God patiently leading people through wilderness experiences. Times where they don't get their desires met. Where it's disorienting and where we're confused by what God is up to in the world. Have you ever had a moment where you're like, God, where are you? Like I'm sitting here listening, and I ask, seek, and knock. You told me to, but nothing. Where once what once made sense in your life no longer does. Where you even have beliefs that were just like, yeah, this is so solid, this is part of it. And then all of a sudden, it's, it's, you're standing on rocky foundation. And you're like, wait a second. What's, what's going on in me right now? In essence, wilderness is so we could learn to be more dependent on God. Hagar, Abraham, Moses, David, Israel, Jacob, Joseph, the list biblically goes on and on. When the promise of something is given, but the deliverance is years away. A wandering through the wilderness where God is at work, even when we don't see it. So what is our task while we are in the wilderness, how do we partner with God through these times of pruning and trust and deepening dependence? I can say our job is in one word, and it may be my least favorite word it's the term weight. Psalm 37 is very instructive. So, in this passage, written by David, there's Two different words used for wait. And he uses it three times. The first one's in verse 7. So Psalm 37, verse 7 says this Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Notice in the passage, there's a qualifier, a type of waiting that they are to do. It says to wait patiently. Now, this Hebrew word, for my Bible scholar nerd friends, the semantic range of this word, for those of you who don't know what that means, it means this word can be translated all these different ways. There's five, six, seven English words that capture this one word. So, the range of which those words entail often includes anguishing, trembling, or birthing. It's a waiting like being in labor is what that word means. So let me read that again. Be still before the Lord and have labor waiting birth pains for God. It's a yearning for something more, something to be birthed. And oftentimes, well, that is always painful. Oftentimes for this, it's painful. The second way of waiting is more a hopeful waiting. You see it in verse nine, in verse 34, and you also see it in Psalm 27, verse 14. I'll just read that one really quick, where it says, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is a hopeful waiting, an excited waiting, an expectation for God to move powerfully. So if we have these two ways of waiting, a birthing, languishing, painful waiting, and an excited, hopeful waiting, Where do you think Elijah is in this story? He's probably not very hopeful. He's probably not excited about where he's at right now. He's slugging along patiently, feeling like he's giving birth to something. And he's just sitting in the pain of all of it. This is what Henry Nouwen says. Henry now says, the wisdom of the desert, or the wilderness, those terms are interchangeable, is that confrontation with our own frightening nothingness. It forces us to surrender ourselves totally and unconditionally to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're anything like me, you want to avoid this step at all costs. As we look through the different phases of renewal, next week we get to the one that we're all waiting for, like encounter, like renewal. Yeah, that's the one that we all want, right? We often wanna jump ahead into that one. We want God to show up. We want God to speak to us. We want God to heal our wounds. We want God to do the things that he's promised he would do. You said you would, and I'm not seeing it yet. We want to get to that place, right? We want, but we want... And what does God ask us to do? Wait. We don't see the spirit moving powerfully. We don't get the answers we want. Oftentimes, all we feel and see and sense in the wilderness is nothingness and silence. And this is where we come face to face now and says with our own nothingness. Dan Allender says this. Our spiritual journey must lead through the desert. Or else our healing will be a product of our own will and wisdom. It is in the silence of the desert that we hear our dependence on noise. It is in the poverty of the desert that we see clearly our attachments to trinkets and babbles that we cling to for security and pleasure. The desert shatters the soul's arrogance and leaves body and soul crying out in thirst and hunger. In the desert, we trust God or die. Trust God or die. Now, as I said throughout the series, there's different phases and there's not a specific sequence or timestamp. It's not sequential. You can go through this type of an experience even in a few moments as God brings a conviction about something going on in your heart. So there are moments like this. And, and that's part of God bringing us to himself. Death has to precede resurrection. What is, Je- what is the parable of Jesus? The seed has to enter the soil and what? Die. So that life could come. Now that can happen momentarily. But I want to talk a, a little bit about the extended times of wilderness. The extended times. if you, This is the place you find yourself. Now to be honest... I think most of us know this stage all too well. However, we just like to ignore it. In Christian circles, we like to gloss over these times in our lives. We like to talk about the good, the bad. It's like, shouldn't we focus on joy? Well, yes, actually. The way your brain's wired, it's always looking for joy. That's why scripture talks about joy in the midst of what? Suffering. A ton. So much. So yes, we need joy, but joy in the midst of wilderness. So we can't artificially rush past wilderness. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. We have to experience the depth of it. And maybe out of fear, we stay away from it. And I've heard this before, because if we let ourselves go there, we'll feel like, well, there's no way of ever going back. That we're about to enter this deep abyss. And we'll just be falling and falling and falling. And there will be no one ever to catch us there. If I let myself feel those thoughts. Go into that part of my story. If I let myself long for God in ways that I think he's leading me to. And I come face to face with that. I'll just experience nothing. God won't show up. God won't prove himself faithful. And so what do we do? We do everything we can to circumvent. We do everything we can to go around the wilderness. To go over it. To go under it. But what does that Allender quote say? Trust God or die. All of us have lived through a wilderness-like experience of the last three years. The overwhelming stream of information causing a huge sense of disorientation. Conversation with family members that turn sideways because of unexpected political turbulence. Or even just the coming to an end of yourself. When you come face to face with your own heart and soul. And you see the depths to which the depravity you weren't expecting to see. There's a movement in the church right now that I don't have time to dive into. There's uh, a lot of hurt from church being expressed right now, exposed, but it's church too, me too, there's a lot of different things. SBC report coming out about a lot of people that have been abused, a lot of things happening, and it's causing people to enter into a deep wilderness experience. And I believe there's a y in the road at the wilderness experience. And that, uh, there may be a W, if I process this out loud for a moment. One step is Detox. And detox is, you know what, there are unhealthy forms of things. There are unhealthy ways to do things. And the detox is exposing the unhealthy ways so God can bring healing. The, th- the middle way is what I'll call the deconstruct way. This is where you don't only detox the forms, but you start to unravel the very foundation of the faith. The resurrection of Jesus, the veracity of scriptures, the life person of Jesus all those things start to unravel. And people that once profess faith, as they enter the wilderness experience, they all of a sudden, they're not just detoxing, they're now deconstructing. And the third way is just the ignorance way. The third way the, of the W is, you know what, I'm not even gonna worry about it. It's actually, you know how I'm not gonna worry about it? When things get tough, I'm just gonna bail. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna get another way where I don't have to experience it I'm gonna run rather than stick in the middle of it and it's very easy to do that in our culture what is your trust God or die experience like have you felt that wilderness W where you're either detoxing and like unpacking things that have happened maybe And I've experienced and I've had lots of conversations with people that are in that deconstruct stage. And honestly, if you're not in the wilderness experience right now, one of the best things you can do with somebody that is in a wilderness experience is to just sit and listen and not say a word. Don't solve. Don't make it better. Just be present. It's amazing how far that goes in that spot. But where are you at right now? Where are you being pruned with no end in sight? Where running would be easier but less beneficial. Why is all this so important? You're like, man, this is not uplifting. (laughs) But why is this important? Why is this needed in God's people? It's through the high pressure and heightened intensity that we get refined to be more pure form of our true self. For my ecology friends, this won't be news to you, but the rest of us non-science oriented friends, let me give you a little nugget of knowledge. Carbon is the second most common element in the human body only behind oxygen. Carbon is literally found everywhere. Now if carbon deposits are hundreds of miles, between 90 and 125 miles below the earth's surface, At that place they're exposed to a a, a wilderness quote-unquote type experience high pressure high temperature high heat what happens when carbon is in that environment what do you get diamonds okay you do not get diamonds without heat and without the pressure it's necessary if you bypass the heat and the pressure You only have the carbon deposits. If you walk through the heat and pressure, you get diamonds. We don't get mature disciples without the furnace of the wilderness. When we're alone with our own hearts in solitude. Listen to Henry now and again, two quotes from him. He says, solitude is the furnace of transformation. It's the place of the great struggle and the great encounter. The struggle against the compulsion of the false self, the encounter with the love, God who offers himself as the substance of his new self. And then this, rather, it's the place of conversion. The place where the old self dies and the new self is born. The place where the emergence of the new man and new woman occurs. God, while in the wilderness, may seem very, very far away. As you look back on wilderness experiences and those of you that have experienced it, you know what I'm about to say is absolute truth. You don't know it in the moment, but you look back and you can't do anything but see it everywhere. The guidance, the presence. Yes, the old self, as Paul says, is being cut off and the new self is being put on, as he says in Colossians. But this wilderness is essential. So if we are to wait, what does waiting look like? What is the practice of that? Glad you asked. I'm gonna say it as one, but they're technically two, and this is where silence and solitude come into the Christian faith. John Mark Homer rightly defines solitude as this, intentional time alone to be with yourself and with God. I'm gonna define silence as shutting off the external noises so you can be present with the internal noises. Okay, two different things, but you honestly, they're so connected, you can't get one without the other. Now one says this, in solitude I get rid of my scaffolding, no friends to talk to, no telephone calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no music to distract me, naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. It's in the nothingness that I have to face in my solitude, a nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, my work, my distractions, so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I am worth something. I'm sure you've never experienced that one before. How many of you are itching to look at your phone right now? We're in a day of distraction and a phone, I'm I'm very guilty of this. The phone is our number one source of going over and under it and not through it. What happens when we allow ourselves to actually get to this place? To, feel, to enter into what feels like the abyss? You get God. You, get, you hear Him speak. You get to rest in Him. For those that know me, you know that silence and solitude is not my normal go-to. That's not my current normal pace of life. I, I lead a very active family that always is on the go. I prefer to be busy. But silence and solitude has become a lifeline for me. I can honestly say I don't think I'd be standing in front of you if it weren't for times of silence and solitude. If it weren't times alone, facing nothingness, Facing the inner wrestlings, the inner noise. And why silence is important. Solitude is important because it shuts off the external noise. But man, when you come face to face with the internal noises. The statements, the, the feelings, the, um, the beliefs that are just churning in your heart. And we just distract ourselves from it. Silence and solitude is the very thing that you enter into, whether in a wilderness experience or not, it's the muscle that's built so that when you are there, you have the strength to persevere the furnace of transformation. I would go as far as say that in the age that we live today, silence and solitude might be the most essential practices for a disciple of Jesus. I can have an argument about that another time, but I'm convinced. We distract ourselves, we busy ourselves, we crowd ourselves out. And oftentimes, we don't even realize it, but we do it because we're trying to not go there. And the spirit is just saying, come, I'm right here. The abyss is not empty, although it will feel that way. I wanna give you rest, I wanna make you whole. I wanna give you strength. So this is what we're gonna do this week. The practice that we're associating with this is I'm not saying everybody go on a day of silence and solitude. That's not what we're doing, okay? What we're doing is when my encouragement, Steve's gonna pass this out, the individual practices, just every day, the first day, identify a set time in which you're just gonna be silent. I'm gonna encourage you, move your phone to another room Take all forms of technology, somewhere you could be silent by yourself alone. Couples, spouses, parents, you may have to work together to make sure each other gets this time. But what I wanna say is day one, set a specific amount of time. My encouragement, five minutes. Just start five minutes by yourself. And then every day, add a single minute. Just one minute. Start at five minutes. Say today. And then by next Sunday, you're up to 12 minutes. That math I can do. Okay? You may have to, your mind a uh, little nugget, and we're gonna take to take a minute just to do it together. Your mind will wander. You will experience noisiness in your own soul. What is help has been helpful for me is to identify a saying or a statement that as my mind wanders, I say the statement and it kind of regrounds me back into that center place. Make sense? Lord, I need you. I I commit my, my spirit to you. Whatever it is for you, into your hands I commit my spirit. Lord, help me. Whatever the statement is, it's a simple way as your mind wanders and you become aware of your wandering to bring you back toward you. If you get five minutes in day one and your mind was wandering the whole time and your timer goes off and you're like, I, I wasn't sounding at all. That's okay. Just do it again the next day. It's, there's no shame. There's no guilt in here. This is a slow process. This is one, and it's even hard to even speak this because this is one that takes years to develop. And... That's okay. Start where you are. Just be present with God. If you need the emotional wheel, there's more of those in the back from the this. Um, and if you aren't paying, it, if you haven't noticed yet, all of these are in a so- practices work together. Why do you need to have build emotional wealth, uh, health, and articulation? Because when you get to the wilderness, you're going to experience a lot of. Them. You need to be able to learn how to bring those to God. And for him to be present with you in the midst of that moment. Why do you need to rest? Why do you need a Sabbath? Because this is work. This takes time. And my friends, oh. If you and I can learn to sit with this. If you and I can be okay with this. Sense of not being okay. Mm -hmm. If we can be there as the family of God where somebody's disoriented and you just are able to be present with them. Mm. Not solve it, not fix it, just be present. Trust the Spirit's work in their life. Trust the Spirit that He's doing something, stirring in people in ways that you may not understand. If you can personally and we can corporately sit in this space, the type of renewal that we can experience is going to be profound. But we can't go over it. We can't go under it. We have to go through it.